Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. What is up, everyone? My name is Tim Whitaker. Welcome to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. Do we have a show for you today? On today's episode, we interviewed Randy Richards. Now, Randy has written two books. The first one's called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, and the second one is Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. Both of these books, guys, I cannot recommend highly enough. Randy does a great job of showing you how the Bible was written in a completely different context and culture and how unintentionally we as Westerners can just misread certain things that we think we understand. Randy came on the show. He was such a great person to have on. He was so gracious to us, gave us several examples of how we can just look at a text or a story that maybe we're familiar with that actually has a whole different meaning. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this interview. One thing I want to mention real quick, guys, before we play the interview is don't forget we do have an official Instagram page. It is at CTJ Podcast. So give us a like and a follow. That would be super helpful for us. Also, if you like this show, please help us get the word out by subscribing to uh, this podcast and also giving us a rating on the iTunes show. So thanks, guys, again for listening and check out this interview. Randy, thank you so much for coming on the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. It is great to have you. Tim, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. So for our listeners' sake, why don't you give us kind of a little overview of who you are, your background, and currently what what you do? All right. My name is Randy Richards. My published name is E. Randolph Richards because uh, Randy doesn't always work real well internationally uh, as a nickname. Uh, I am married to Stacia. We've been married coming up on 40 years this uh, next month. And as I mentioned, I have two sons and two grandsons, and I'm very, very blessed at the moment. Uh, after I finished my PhD in New Testament, Stacia and I moved to Indonesia, not just to Indonesia, but remote Indonesia. Uh, our, younger, our older son was two, and our younger son was eight weeks old. Wow. And uh, we, we, uh, most missionaries, people think they live in the bush, but they really live in urban jungles. But ironically enough, we were actually one of the ones in the, in the bush. So we were uh, out in an outer island, wonderful, wonderful people who taught me, uh, well, they, they taught me what's in these books. Wow. That is, I mean, eight weeks old and you just pack up to Indonesia in the bush. I mean, what, what was the, you guys felt really compelled, like you just had to go? Well, we, um, yeah, we, we felt God had called us and we uh, wanted to go. Uh, you know, back then you didn't really have internet and Google Earth, so uh, we didn't know where we were going, which was probably uh, pretty good. So uh, we were blessed <laughs> to be there uh, eight years. Then I came back and taught at a couple places. And then I came to Palm Beach Atlantic University, where I am now, and served as dean of ministry and now uh, provost. 
Awesome. Well, I know, um, you know, we, I have you on the show because there are two books that I've read of yours. Uh, one's newer, one's I, I, maybe a couple of years old that really impacted me. Uh, misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes and Misreading Scripture Through Individualist Eyes. Can you give us some of like the um, inspiration for both of these books and maybe like a big picture overview of what you talk about in them? Sure. I was actually in a hut in Indonesia. I think I was in Borneo, actually. And, uh, and we were waiting around for lunch to get cooked. And uh, one of the uh, elders there said, um, we have a problem and, and we would like your wisdom. And of course, I thought, well, I'm a missionary. I'll give it a try. And uh, I said, uh, you know, what is it? And they said, well, we have a couple that uh, a husband and wife who committed a very, very grievous sin. Um, and they had to flee their village. And so they moved to our village. That was 10 years ago. They've lived wonderful, godly lives, and they would like to join our church. We just don't know if they can. What do you think? And I said, well, what was the sin? They said, oh, it was very, very serious. Um, I mean, serious enough, we're not sure they can join the church. And I said, well, what was it? And of course, they didn't want to air dirty village laundry, you know, uh, but I said, well, you know, I kind of need to know. So they talk about it a minute in the local language. And then they come back and they said, well, they married on the run, which uh, we would call eloping. Right. And uh, fortunately, I didn't say, well, my folks did that. Um, they did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say that, but I did say, well, what's the sin? And they looked at me and they said, have you never read Paul? And I thought, gee, I did my PhD on Paul. <laughs> I, know, I thought I read Paul. I said, uh, what do you mean? And they said, well, Paul says children obey your parents. And, and, and we know that, you know, children don't always do it. But in the most important decision in your life, surely you should expect that. And I realized sitting there, that verse in Paul for me had an expiration date. Mm -hmm. You know, it only applied till you were 18. Right. And at that moment, I thought, I wonder if I've ever read Paul. Wow. Wow. So is that where the inspiration, I guess, that, that's, that's what launched you into this, I, this book and everything? That, that started me thinking. Um, maybe a, a few weeks later, I was handing back a test because I was teaching in Indonesia, and it was a multiple choice test, and you, you're handing it out. And, and I noticed on uh, you know, a student, as I handed it to her, I said, uh, you didn't answer number three. It's a multiple choice question. You didn't answer number three. And she said, um, I didn't know the answer. And I said, well, you should have guessed. And she looked at me and she said, but what if I guessed right? That would imply that I knew the answer when I didn't. That'd be lying. And I almost opened up my mouth and argued her to a lower standard. <laughs> and, and I realized my American pragmatism hmm. had run right over the top of my Christian value of honesty. And wow. uh, and it's just those moments and kept going and kept going and just made me think over the years, um, could I occasionally be misreading scripture with Western eyes? <laughs> well, as I, a friend of mine uh, gave me the book and I'm a big audiobook guy, so I threw it on an audiobook. And the guy who narrates it is great. The guy who reads it's awesome. And I remember thinking like, when you brought up those examples in the book, I thought, oh my goodness, I have never thought about those scriptures like that ever. But duh, <laughs> you know, like, it, like the lights were on. So I do think that books like this are so important for the American church to really get because I feel like um, something that we're not aware of is that we kind of assume that our culture is just the norm 
everywhere. Like this is just how the world, the global world functions. Clearly though, we're kind of in the minority. In fact, I, I watched one of your earlier videos where you were showing, you were talking about kind of a, a, a scale of like the most individualist society, the most collectivist. And you were saying how America and the UK are so far individualist, they tip the scales. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, and uh, Tim, let me say at the beginning, just for, for uh, your viewers, this is not a bash the West book. Um, yeah. I think there's so much yes. that the Western church does. Um, I don't think either the Western church or the Eastern church, one is better than the other. It's kind of like arguing which wing of an airplane is more important. <laughs> no, it really doesn't matter. Mm. Um, There's certain things that in the West, we just do so well, you know, like generosity. We are so very generous. I, I think the Western church has really captured the heart of Jesus toward generosity. Hmm. I mean, we'll see um, someone in need on the other side of the planet that we have no family connection to, no connection at all, and our hearts will be stirred and we'll give generously. Hmm. So we're also very forgiving. Hmm. I remember talking to a Japanese Christian friend one time, and he said, so really, um, American Christians aren't like still mad over Pearl Harbor? And I said, no, really not. And he said, wow, I wouldn't assume that about Japanese Christians. Mm. And, and I said, oh, <laughs> uh, right. oh, okay. And uh, mm. so we just do forgiveness so very well. Mm. But there's also some things that we don't do quite so well. And mm. one of them is most of the world is what we call collectivist, which is an awkward term. We understand individualist. Mm. So it's the opposite of individualist, not mm. individualist, whatever that term is. <laughs> and right. so uh, we kind of coined the term collectivist. They, you know, people say, well, can you describe that in a nutshell? No. Um, it's <laughs> right. like describing an individualist in a nutshell. Mm. In mm. fact, a couple of things we like to say in the book is the most important things usually go without being said. Yes. And, mm -hmm. the, and very important ideas in a culture are really hard to explain. Uh, I was working with some Malaysian friends one time, and at one point, and I was working in Malaya, and I wanted to say, look, you just need to toughen up, you know. And I realized, wow, I don't, I don't know the way to say that. Mm. And I started, because, you know, girls can be tough in a delicate and feminine way, but, I mean, tough isn't just a guy thing or just a guy, but... And so when we say, oh, you know, that, that was tough of you or, or you need to toughen up or all that, we, we know what we mean. But when you start trying to explain it, you know, it's like mm -hmm. grit. Well, you know, you need – and so what we end up doing is using 10 more metaphors to explain that first metaphor. <laughs> right. and, and so they'll have their own kinds of metaphors, and they're just really hard to mm. uh, explain. And so individualists, they, they had a scale. I can't remember which European scholar did it. They had a scale from the most collectivist to the least collectivist. And the scale runs all the way to about right there. And then two cultures are that far past the individual. So when you add those two, the U.S. and the U.K., it makes the third most individualist culture look kind of collectivist. Mm. So we just ruined the scale in a way. We are just so far off the chart. The problem is we, we kind of think everybody thinks like us. You know, I'll hear people say, well, I mean, they dress differently. You know, they eat a lot more rice than we do. Um, but deep down inside, we're all the same. And I argue deep down inside where we're the most different. Mm. 
Hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, one of the concerns like uh, an American reader might have, right, when they hear the word collectivist, unfortunately, I think that their mind jumps politically right away and they start thinking, oh, you know, political lenses and all this stuff, which is not your point in the book at all. You're just trying to point out that, hey, other cultures function differently. But like you said, I think we're so far in one direction, even trying to, to uh, push even slightly the other direction, people, they start freaking out, I think sometimes, you know? So we have cultural values, things that we think are important, like youth, um, efficiency. You know, when you say, hey, if you do it this way, it's more efficient. We don't then have to explain why it's better. Anything. It's automatically better. Right. And I went overseas and I realized when you say we can make this more efficient, it's like saying, well, we can paint it blue. They think, well, blue's nice. You know, <laughs> green would be nice too. It's, mm. it's very much a neutral value. Mm. And it, it just stunned me because I thought I had already made the point. Um, <laughs> but, you know, youth is very important in our culture. A new is very important in our culture. Mm. You know, if you're a youth minister, you can walk in on Wednesday night and say, I'm changing things up. We're going to do something new. And everybody's all excited. They don't even know what you're doing. They don't even know if it's going to be any good. But they're excited already because new is good. And in most of the world, new is not good. Uh, mm. Tried and true is good. And so the whole reason the New Testament quotes scripture is to indicate this is not new. This is what God's been doing all along. Mm. And, and we, you know, we pick out that one verse. Um, you know, this is the new covenant. We think, oh, see, they're excited. Well, that was a 600-year-old verse that, that he cited. You know? mm. So the new covenant was, we would say, ancient history. And you get... And that, that brings a whole new understanding to Paul, too, when he goes back so often, or Peter in his sermon, they go so often back to, this is how the Israelites were. This is how our heritage was. This is why we can prove that Jesus is who he says he is. This is why it's not a new message. It's building upon the old. And uh, I, I like what you said there, because it gives us a new framework to view the scriptures and a better framework to understand it in their context, in their culture. So uh, Rob, when we have cultural values uh, like that, then every culture has ways of uh, maintaining, enforcing, reinforcing those values. Hmm. So in, in uh, my culture, some of the ways they do it is guilt. Um, my grandmother was a pro. Um, as, um, we also use um, cultural stories, you know, the uh, tortoise and the hare, the, you know, all of those kinds of stories. Re Cinderella kind of reinforces. You can't tell a modern love story without somehow getting Cinderella involved in it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of my little college girls want to be pursued by that one guy. All the other guys are creepy stalker guys. So, um, <laughs> So the poor guy's trying to figure out, am I the guy or am I the creepy stalker guy? <laughs> so, uh, been there, been there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we have all of these ways of enforcing those values. Well, collectivists also have their own values, and they vary by culture, and they have different ways of enforcing those values. Honor, shame, and boundaries enforce those things. That's why honor confuses us. Because we'll say, in this culture, honor, this is what's honorable. Well, in that culture, that's what's honorable. So it seems like the value honor change, the value of honor changes. No, the value uh, changes because it's different cultures, but honor is how they reinforce it. So they um, say, this is a good thing, 
to do because we're giving honor to it. And uh, when you bring up that honor, it, um, in our Bible study at my local church, we're going through First uh, Timothy, and we just went um, on Wednesday night through honoring the widows and what that means. And it, it ties in exactly with what you said. It, it's putting them in a higher place. It's valuing something or someone for, uh, for what they have done and, and uh, valuing, don't rebuke an older man. Don't treat um, the sisters, the older sisters as, as your mother. Treat the younger sisters as, as your sisters. And it, it just brings in that whole idea of honor and what that means to their culture. So uh, one of the challenges is uh, we tend to think shame is the opposite of honor, which it's not. Dishonor is the opposite of honor. Right. Um, and in our culture, we only misuse shame. Yeah. So shame yeah. is always done wrong in our culture. And therefore, we come back and we say, you know, it's wrong to shame someone. Shaming someone is wrong. The problem is Paul does it. Jesus does it. God does yep. it. No. And so we don't know what to do. But what we actually do in our culture is misuse shame. Mm. The idea is um, the ideal way to behave might be the middle of a circle. Well, nobody is that. But you can move far enough away. You're near the boundary. You know, you're about to cross the line. And the idea of shame is when the group says, oh, 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 oh don't cross the line. Mm. But it's pulling you back. The idea is to pull you back. So it's mm. to rescue us, all of us, by pulling you back. The wrong use of shame pushes you out. Right. So um, it, it doesn't allow someone an opportunity to respond. Mm. So um, you, there are two books, right? Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, Misreading Scripture Through um, Individualist Eyes. I feel like, I feel like, like it kind of builds upon itself. Like I, I, you know, reading the first book really helped me understand the second one better. Can you um, explain maybe what are some of the big uh, focuses in both books you know, versus the other one? Yes, uh, I would recommend people start with the Western Eyes book. Um, it is. It started talking about um, just. I, I use the image of an iceberg. You know, there's there's obvious differences between our cultures, and it's the stuff you can see. You know, they they don't dress the way we do. They don't talk the way we do. They eat different kinds of things, and those are fairly harmless. They're often kind of fun. You know, it's the part you enjoy as a tourist, you know, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. But it's just the top of the iceberg. Mm. When you move further down, there are bigger differences between our cultures. Those are often where kind of confusion happens. It doesn't quite make, you know, they, uh, people say they have no sense of time, you know, over there. They, they never start on time. <laughs> well, they would argue they do start on time. They start at the right time. Just mm. how, what you define as right. So, uh, and then deep down in the iceberg, there are uh, values that probably are powering all of the rest. And uh, we often don't even see them. They're often lurking behind these other values. And they're really deep-seated. Like uh, their view, they value relationships over rules. Um, hmm. That's a really deep-seated culture. It's a whole different way of viewing rules than what we have. So... Uh, Kim, can I tell a story? Please, take all the time you want. Okay. Absolutely. So I was uh, invited by a convention uh, out between Borneo and New Guinea on an island. And uh, they said, would you speak at a pastor's conference? I said, sure. Uh, they said, now this is um, because we're limiting in space and that sort of thing. We're only going to invite pastors to this conference. We can't 
have their families come. I said, okay. So, you know, it's their convention, their group. So I thought I probably better read up on what this group does, you know, so I don't step in it too much. <laughs> and so um, I kind of read through and one of those, one of their rules was pastors must be male. Okay. Their rule. So I thought, all right, don't, don't say anything that would upset them. So I get up to speak. There's about a hundred, I don't know, 120 people in the, in the room. And there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen, maybe not quite that many women in the room. So I, I go ahead and speak and all that. And I sit down when I'm done next to the president of the convention, Yoti Lego. And uh, we're kind of just chit chatting while they're setting up the next thing. And I said, uh, Yoti, the, uh, this meeting is just for pastors. Yeah. 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 I said, I said, so only pastors are here. He said, yeah, only pastors are here. I said, so everyone in the room is called pastor. Yes. I said, okay. They all do pastor stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I said, um, there's some women in the room. He said, yes. I said, so they're pastors too. Yeah. And I should have left it alone, but you know, I'm an American. <laughs> so I said, uh, but, but your rules say pastors must be male. And then he replied, yes. And most of them are. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, it was a long conference. So I sat there the rest of the conference thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And what, what I came to the conclusion was they have a different view of rules than we do. Hmm. For us, a rule has to apply to everybody or it's not fair. Hmm. And a rule has to apply all the time or it's broken. And, and of course, we know God is always fair and God is never broken. And therefore, we say that's the way his rules are. So Paul says, I won't allow a woman to teach. Okay, that's it. Um, I think if we could have stopped Paul and said, well, what about Phoebe? He'd say, well, yeah, sure, Phoebe. You know, um, they viewed, as an American, we would have to change that convention's rule to most women, or most pastors must be male. And then we'd argue about the percentage. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they didn't have that problem. So what happened is the New Testament is like them more than it's like me. Hmm. So I read the New Testament and I try to apply my view of rules to scripture rather than their view of rules. Hmm. And I think it sets us into all kinds of trouble. For, and and I, to, I torment my theology friends now because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, I say, but I'm a lousy one. Oh. And, and they'll say... Well, like what? Like you only do three of the five things? And I say, no, like I think God uh, predestined everything he wanted to. And they say, well, no, if he predestines, he has to predestine everything. Hmm. Why? And, and, you know, and I'm probably tormenting you guys too. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it strikes me, Tim, it's interesting that my friends who talk the most about the sovereignty of God usually talk the most about what God won't do mm. or even can't do. Interesting. Yeah. So I think uh, they view rules differently than we do. Huh. Wow. Yes. I remember that example from the, the first book, uh, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. And I also remember, um, can you give us maybe a few 
examples of like stories that maybe we grew up with in the Bible that maybe we have just missed the focus on. I'm thinking about um, the David and Goliath story was really powerful. The example of that. Um, I thought about the verse you guys bring up uh, in the first book about, um, you know, being a lukewarm Christian, what that can actually be pointing to. Can you explain maybe one or two of those for us? Sure. Um, the David and Goliath story is, is just a wonderful story. Of course, the writer expects us to be able to remember a couple of chapters back. And uh, when they wanted Saul as king, and they said, we want a king who'll go out and fight our battles for us. And, uh, and, and God said, uh, you don't need a king. I'm your king. No, we want a king who'll go out and fight our battles for us. And, uh, and God tells Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected as king. Mm -hmm. So it, it bothers God. But then they go out and they pick Saul. And the point about Saul was he looked kingly. You know, yeah. he was a head taller than everybody else. And he just, you know, you know, he just looked kingly. Mm -hmm. So uh, they pick him. And, uh, and then they're fighting the Philistines, which they seem to do all the time. You know, when you read the Old Testament, they're fighting the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Stalactites and, and all of them. So um, they, uh, they get there and uh, they say, okay, instead of all of us fight, you pick a champion, we'll pick a champion. Well, who should they pick? Well, the Israelites should pick Saul. And, uh, and, they, and Saul probably thinks, okay. And then they bring out the ringer, okay, Goliath. And uh, he is... You know, he's big. One of the things they mention about him is he has great armor, which not everybody did. Um, one of the challenges the Israelites had, they were in the Bronze Age while the Philistines had entered the Iron Age. Mm. So they mention all, all the iron weapons that, that wow. um, Goliath has. And they mention he has a great big shield, so big that he has another guy just to carry the shield. <laughs> so, you know, all right. At that point... Um, God doesn't want, I mean, uh, Saul doesn't want to fight him, and David is going to fight him. Um, David is a sling thrower, they called them back then. Uh, what we were supposed to know, one of the things that went without being said in antiquity, was sling throwers were a common part of every army. Um, even all the way up into early Roman period, they used sling throwers. And they're throwing a ball about, a stone about the size of a softball. Wow. So. Yeah, it's it's serious business. You heave that baby out over the ranks when it comes down, it, it hits hard. And you can you can do some damage to somebody with a sling, but uh, one of the disadvantages to a sling is you can't get off a quick shot. They can tell you're winding up. So the uh, slings had a natural defense called a shield. All you did when the guy starts winding up, you just duck down behind the shield. Hmm. And uh, you wait for the stone to hit the shield, and then you run up closer till he starts winding up. Then you park the shield, wait for the stone, that sort of thing. So we're told that when David uh, goes, there's a stream in the middle. Of course, you're most susceptible when you're climbing down into the stream bed and coming back up. So David runs ahead, grabs five stones. He doesn't grab ten because he doesn't think he'll have time enough to throw more than about five. Hmm. And, uh, and he gets out on the other side. And now he's facing Goliath. Goliath taunts him a little bit. But we were supposed to remember Goliath has a great big shield. So uh, we're supposed to draw the conclusion, well, David's goose is cooked. I mean, he doesn't have a, a chance. Really. Hmm. Uh, 
So you you know you throw your stones. The guy moves closer. You throw your stones. The guy moves, that's the way it works in these armies. Now you have one possible strategy. It's not a very good one. You could wind up, and when the guy ducks behind his shield, you could try to run up on him and stick a sword in him on the side while he's hiding behind his shield. Not a very good strategy, but you know it. Yeah, you do have to watch out for it. So right. we're told David starts to wind, and Goliath. Um, you know, they don't give us the details except to tell us where um, Goliath got hit. But while David's winding, Goliath has to make sure that David's not running up on him. So you got a great big shield. All you do is just peek for mm. a second to make sure he's not running up on you. Well, how long does it take to peek? You know, a second, maybe. Which would mean the stone would have to already be in the air mm. and already aim to the right spot before Goliath even started peeking. Hmm. So we're not supposed to draw the conclusion, wow, David killed Goliath. We're supposed to draw the conclusion, God killed Goliath. Hmm. Um, God fights for us. Hmm. And uh, that's the conclusion the Philistines drew. Oh my gosh, their God fights for them. And so um, they took off running. So the story is not the little guy beats the big guy. The story is God fights for us. Hmm. Um, and so we end up converting it because we don't know the history. We end up converting it into a, you know, the little guy beats the big guy. And it's become so much a part of our culture. We always root for the little guy. Right. Yeah. And that's right. not the whole, that's not the point at all. The hmm. point was um, God fights for us. Could you give us um, one more um, analysis? Uh, I remember reading again uh, the book and thinking you explained uh, the story of David and Bathsheba. And that to me was one of the most like, oh my gosh, my, my lens was focused on the wrong things about that story, about just, you know, the honor shame that was happening, just things that you just don't pick up on. Could you give us uh, an overview of that one as well? Sure. The, um, the woman is called Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba. Um, and she's, and she's described all the way through as the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. So I think in the story, I call her Mrs. Uriah all the time. Hmm. And people think that's kind of impersonal, but that's the point of the story. The story is not about her. Um, the, the story is fraught with wonderful stories that they tell. You know, one of the things is you're not supposed to suggest, you know, something the king doesn't know hmm. because, you know, one thing kings might take that personally. <laughs> So when Saul was hunting for where David was, you know, where is David? Well, they knew he was hiding down by the springs of Gedi. Well, you can't say that. So they would say, isn't David hiding out by the springs of Gedi? And Saul would say, yes, he is. See, because the kings know everything. Mm. So um, you know, that's one of the dynamics. The other thing is after you've been cooped up all winter in your palace, then in springtime, you go out and you fight a war with somebody because, you know, that's what you do when you have cabin fever. Right. Why not? So, the story opens up in the springtime when kings go out to war. Mm. David stayed home. Mm. You know, there it is. Right. You know, and and uh, they're already expressing David is where he's not supposed to be. Mm. Um, instead, he sends his general out to fight for him. Um, so then David is walking along the parapet. Um, so, and Bathsheba... Uh, this woman is bathing on her roof. One of the things I tell my young college kids is, um, you may not always be paying attention to where you are, but trust me, women generally 
are aware of their surroundings when they're when they're not appropriately clothed. Mm, mm-hmm. So it we should not conclude that she's thinking, oh, I didn't realize that balcony up there belonged to the king. Uh. <laughs> and that he walks there in the evening time. Mm. Um, I mean, no, in the White House, I'm told everybody knows exactly how many feet their office is from the Oval Office. Mm. And I would never believe a story where somebody said, you know, I was um, I just stepped out to get a cup of coffee and I happened to bump into the president as he walked down the hallway every day that same hour. Um, right, right. You know, I'm just, I'm just not going to believe it. It's possible she is a victim, but the stories that follow describe her as a very shrewd woman. Hmm. Um, now, I don't know that her society has necessarily been treating her very well, and I don't want to de- describe her in a, in a negative term in many ways, but she is she has been married to Uriah the Hittite, um, which is actually one of the few times that uh, white people are mentioned in the Old Testament. Hittites are Caucasians. Oh. Um, um, but she is Bathsheba, daughter of Sheba, which is probably the Sheba in Africa. So she might be Cushite. So there's, there is a, some reason that David particularly uh, notices her. She's beautiful, obviously. She's, this is not her evening bath. People didn't bathe in antiquity. This would be some sort of ceremonial bath, some kind of ritual cleansing sort of thing or whatever. And, uh, and so uh, I don't think the text expects us to assume that she didn't realize that she happened to be doing that when David was around. Hmm. So then David says, who is that? And of course, the servant answers appropriately, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, um, and uh, and David, yes, that's right. Now, uh, you know who when he sends for her, who's going to know about it? Everybody, everybody's going to know about it. When that servant leaves to go get her, he's going to talk to fifteen people on the way out. Guess what? Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, everyone at her house, because when the servants of the king bang on her door, she's got to have her helpers and her servants help gather up all of her stuff and make sure she's appropriately attired for this uh, situation. And so um, it's possible David forced himself on her and it's just a classic rape. It's also uh, possible that you just have two people misbehaving. Hmm. Um, you know, who, you know, I don't want to imply mm-hmm. too, too much about, uh, about that motive, but um when the matter is done, David does not keep her. Um, he sends her back, which is actually a bit insulting. Mm. Um, kings in antiquity were allowed to take whatever they wanted. They could take someone's vineyard. They could take their house. They could take any of their property, including uh, their wife. But he does not. Now, um, uh, what does Uriah know about this? Well, he should know that it has happened. If he doesn't know that it has happened, then he does not have a single reliable servant in his household um, mm. because servants are supposed to tell you what's going on. And uh, mercenaries were fed by supplies that their families brought them. There was no uh, mess hall back in the ancient army. Mm. So in the story of David later, you remember he meets Goliath because he was bringing supplies for his brothers to eat because you had to supply your own family who were soldiers in the army. Um, and if you remember earlier in that story, David 
bring supplies of food and special cheeses for the mm-hmm. the commanders because maybe then the commanders will keep the brothers a little further back from the front line, you know. Huh. Um, so uh, Uriah is going to be getting regular supplies from back home for himself and maybe some of his select troops. So to to think that no one has told him what has happened, I think is really just to mm. stretch the limits. So uh, Uriah knows this has happened. He'll have to decide for himself what he's going to uh, do about it later. You remember in the ancient world, people did not marry for love. They married for other kinds of reasons. Mm. Uh, modern, my modern African friends tend to marry to have children. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we marry for love. So we think everybody does. Right. So when you fall out of love, you're supposed to divorce. So my African friends, if, if they don't have children, then you're supposed to divorce. Mm. So um, in antiquity, they married usually to cement relationships and that sort of thing. So um, uh, Uriah gets a message that he's supposed to come home. Well, uh, you know, he's a mercenary commander in the army. Why would the king be sending for you? You know, I, uh, and trust me, he, if he didn't know beforehand, he would want to know before he showed up. Mm. Uh, because if the king had ill intentions for you, you would have taken that message and run the other way. Um, you know, so he's, he's, he's going to be all informed before he gets there. And the story is tons of examples about it because when he shows up, the King says, go home first, wash your feet. You know, in other words, spend the night and all of the euphemisms related to that. Hmm. Um, you know, I don't know if we can stay, I assume we're pretty PG here, but, but whatever the Bible talks about, man, go for it. (laughs) You know, uh, feet in scripture is generally a euphemism. Mm. Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, uh, Boaz doesn't have to marry Ruth for uncovering his feet. He wears sandals. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> okay. I mean, the cherubim cover, they have a set of wings for covering their feet. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm reading between the lines. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So, um, Fascinating. so he's, he's going to go home, go home, wash your feet. So, and, uh, he goes home and sleeps in the doorway where all the servants can see he didn't go home. So, I mean, why not? You've been out on the field. Go home. Right. You know, we wouldn't have to tell Tim twice. Um, so, nope. uh, so why would he do that? Well, he's very deliberately not going home. He, because what David is basically doing is asking them to let him off the hook for right. uh, his wife being expecting. Because, you know, ancient people could count to nine, but, you know, if Uriah went home, then people say, okay. Uh, so the servants say, uh, Uriah didn't go home. He slept down at the gatehouse. With, so, you know, tons of witnesses. So David says to him, you didn't go home. Here's some gifts. Go home. Well, what would we call those gifts? You know, th- you know so he's giving them gifts to sweep this matter kind of under the rug mm. and Uriah won't do it. So then David gets him, you know, drunk as a sailor or he hopes to, so that if Uriah passes out, then you just haul him down there and throw open the door, toss him in, <laughs> close the door and, and you're off the hook anyway. <laughs> right. And, and Uriah won't do it. Um, now I don't know if that's because Uriah deeply loved his wife. I kind of hope so whatever. Um, or it could be that he's mad because, um, you know, 
uh, David should have married her and paid him a decent price for her or, mm. or I, you know, whatever it is, he's not buying it. And so then David um, orders him killed. And uh, which, by the way, is, is completely legit in the ancient world for kings. Mm. There were what we call despots, which mean you're a tyrant, but you, can, you have control over life and death. So you can say off with their head and you don't have to have a trial or anything. Off of the head means off of the head. Wow. So he can just order Uriah dead. Um, and nobody is going to critique it. It's perfectly legit in the ancient world. Nobody is actually even mad over this except God. Mm. And he's not happy. Mm. And, uh, and he sends Nathan the prophet. I would not have wanted to be Nathan getting that assignment. Mm. Um, and one of the great moments in uh, David's life is he repents. Um, and it's, it's really just a beautiful moment. Now he does say, you know, in, in the Psalm against you and you only have I sinned. I'm thinking, I don't know. I'd probably lose Uriah. <laughs> you know, I'd come up with a little bit longer. List, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, whatever. Well, um, it is interesting because one of the things that you point out in the book about that story, especially when it comes to Nathan is that, you know, David doesn't have like this inner sense of guilt for what he did what were i as a westerner all i could think about is wait how how are you okay until nathan tells you what you did was wrong that's just, is that just a different value set that someone in that culture had there is an interesting article written in the 60s um by a theologian who actually was somehow he got a speaking gig at the american psychological association i think <laughs> okay and he wrote a he did a speech on Paul and the introspective conscience of the West that beginning as early as maybe Aristotle, there began to have this idea that um, you could look inside yourself to find uh, guilt and innocence. You could judge yourself. That's actually, I introduced my students, you know, they all think they know about the one ring because they've seen the movie, you know, yeah, uh -huh. and, uh, but, but the one ring was actually, um, the ring that uh, that would make you invisible, according to, the, uh, I guess it was Aristotle, he said um, that would be the one temptation that no human could resist because you could go down and steal fruit from the market and no one would see you. Mm. So then you wouldn't be guilty, see, because no one had seen you. Mm. So it'd be, so in the movie, you know, in the uh, Lord of the Rings movie, they just make it a temptation no one can resist. They don't bother to explain why. Right. But that thought, what he argued, what the Greek philosophers began to argue was, no, a person, it shouldn't just be a matter of if your neighbors can see you steal the fruit. You should be able to tell yourself, I have stolen the fruit. That's wrong. And that's the beginning of this movement that became the introspective conscience of the West, that we can do something wrong. No one know about it. And we can sit in our room and feel just horrendously guilty. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit uses that. Um, uh, when I moved to Indonesia, I discovered they don't even have words for that. Wow. But they have about 20 words for shame. Mm. Um, and so, <laughs> so the Holy Spirit uses that. So uh, the Holy Spirit's not caught off guard. He's not a one-shot cannon. Mm. So he can use guilt for us Westerners, and he can use shame for my Eastern friends. Hmm. Um, talk to me about Paul, because um, one of the last things I want to bring up about the actual, like, um, you know, in the Bible, some of these themes we're seeing, I was really um, 
fascinated to hear you explain in um, the first book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, this idea of grace, faith, um, you know, a gift, how that's very tied to a very cultural thing that's happening in Paul's world. I, as someone who grew up in the evangelical culture, homeschooled, grew up fundamentalist, never heard anything about this until that until this book. And I got to say, it kind of blew my mind. Can you give us a, another big picture overview about this idea? Right. Um, thanks, Tim. In fact, I thought uh, about another six or so years about the topic and thought, I think I can explain it even better. So it's one of the main things I talk about in the second book. But let me back up and say it this way. Paul used illustrations they understood to explain things they didn't understand. Mm. It's, a little, it's like Jesus' use of parables. He took what people understood, Palestinian farming, to explain things they don't understand, the kingdom of God. Now, we read it backwards. We understand a little bit about the kingdom of God. We don't understand squadoosh about Palestinian farming. And so we actually tend to read the parables backwards. Mm. So Paul took adoption, which everybody understood, as a way to explain our new relationship with God. He has adopted us. And people thought, oh, oh, that makes perfect sense because they understood adoption. The other system he used was something that was deeply ingrained in their culture, still is today. I say among collectivists, there's three elephants in every room. One is patronage. The other is kinship. And the last one is brokerage or mediation. And I say, that's always in play anytime you have collectivists in the room. And individualists said, no, 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 you know, and then I'll, there'll be a collectivist in the room who will say, yes, yes, it is. Um, and patronage is interesting. All three of those are negative in our culture. Patronage is already a negative term. Kinship we call nepotism. And brokerage we call the middleman. Mm. And yet in collectivist societies, all three of those are very positive. Mm. You'd never want to do without them. And so um, patronage, everybody wants a patron, someone who can benefit them, someone who can get great. So I use this illustration. I use, I'm getting where I use it all the time. So um, this guy, Balin, let's say his name, he's a baker in Philippi. Hmm. And so he bakes bread, you know, because his father baked bread, his grandfather baked bread, everybody bakes bread. Well, one day he must have angered Fornax, the goddess of bakers, because his baker, bakery burned down. Hmm. We might say, well, being careless didn't hurt. But mm. anyway, so now what's he going to do? How's he going to rebuild his bank? He doesn't have any money. Banks right. won't loan him any money because um, he doesn't have anything. Mm. The bakery burned out. So uh, a friend says, I, I, I have a friend who's this wealthy person down several blocks from here. I think he'll help you. So that's a mediator, see? So he stands in line. Every morning, the friends of that patron stand in line. And they stand in line waiting their turn. When they get to their turn, they'll say, does uh, my, my Lord there, sir, do you need anything from me? He might say, well, I need you to do this or that. But otherwise, no. And then he will give him uh, gifts to help him. Hmm. So Balin gets there. He explains his plight, this sort of thing. Um, that benefactor doesn't have to help Balin. He's not obligated in any way. But he decides, gosh, this poor guy. So he decides to help him. That, that gift that he gives uh, Balin in antiquity was called charis. We'll talk about that in a second. Mm. And then after that point, they now have a relationship. And Balin and this benefactor are tied together. And Balin, the way he has to reciprocate, because gifts always had strings attached, we would say. 
Hmm. My Eastern friends would say gifts hold hands. <laughs> and that okay. gifts, gifts form bonds, gifts form relationships. So uh, Balin has to uh, reciprocate, but he can't do it with money. So he has to do it with loyalty. He speaks well of his patron and he's loyal to his patron. And they call that pistis. Those two terms, the only times they're ever used together is with patrons. So the only time they talk about charis, a gift, and pistis, loyalty, together is when they're talking about patronage. And so Paul uses those terms. We translate charis, grace, and we translate pistis, faith. Hmm. And we turn them into something. But when they heard grace and faith, they would say, oh, a patron. And so they're saying God is our patron mediated by Jesus Christ. And the point they would make is because when we accept that gift, we now have a relationship. So what I would say to my students is mm. every morning we should be lined up at our patron's door asking, what does our master need of us? This is when, you, when I heard this, uh, when I heard it explained this way, it really helped me um, rectify this tension I've always had to wrestle with of like faith and work, so to speak, you know, like grace and works, because it makes a lot more sense to see it as them, them holding hands where, well, because I know I'm helpless, because I know I can't, I can't pay the debt that I owe, and Jesus, my patron, has fulfilled it, I owe him my allegiance or my loyalty. That really puts it into su such a better framework than, oh, it's just all grace, or no, there's works, or whatever, however we, we frame it here in the West. So one morning, you're lined up, you're bailing, you're lined up at the door. You say, sir, do you need anything of me? He said, yes. I just had a special guest come last night. His name is Paul. I'm hosting a big dinner for him tonight. I need you to cook special bread for me because I want to really impress my guest tonight. Mm. Um, so those aren't works. That's something you're happy to do for your benefactor who's been so kind and gracious to you. Yes. So, you know, we, I have, uh, Rob has one more question for you, and then I'll ask my last one here. Um, so what do we do with this? All right. So I look at like our American evangelical culture. I grew up in it. I love it. I'm obsessed with it. Um, and I'm just, I read these kinds of books. And I'm like, man, I wish all my friends could like read this and then let it like affect how we read the Bible. So what do we do with like the stuff you're presenting to us, this idea of, you know, we have to understand the Bible on its own terms to really understand its fullness. How do we handle that in, in, in this culture that we live on, that we live in here in America? Well, first, uh, Tim, I would love for all of your friends to buy the book. So, <laughs> my mom can't buy all of them. So, uh, but what I would say about things that go without being said, once you pick it up and set it on the table, uh, some of the damaging aspects of it going without being said are gone. You know, um, blinders or biases, influences, don't affect us as much when we're aware of them. Hmm. And so when I'm aware of the fact that I tend to read, I overvalue efficiency or I overvalue youth or something like that, then it has less influence on me. So ultimately, our goal in doing this is so that I read the Bible better, so that I can follow Jesus better. And I mean, that's the goal. In the end, we just want to follow Jesus better. 100%. Yeah, I think one of my main questions uh, as I was listening to the books, reading the books, uh, listening to what you had to say, I, I was just, I was, I wanted to ask the question, and it's a pretty direct um, question, but 
I think it's it's one that needs to be asked. What what in your opinion is maybe the biggest or or most damaging or dangerous misconception that we have that when we bring that to scripture, it has caused uh, such a such a great misconception that we're totally missing the point. Whether it's you know some theology or some practice in a local church, or what what in your opinion has been the the biggest misconception from the Western societies? Uh, Rob, can I weenie out and say a big <laughs> one rather than the biggest one? Absolutely. Um, and this is what actually made me revisit this topic. Um, uh, I think it is our individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we we speak in terms of me. I, I tell my young ministers, their biggest challenge is to create the body of Christ out of a room full of individualists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think the more we think about we, so some of the fun things I see in, in your generation and even the ones a little younger than you is they're seeing more corporate stuff. They're, they're sensing community. And some of the fun things I'm hearing, I'm thinking, oh, that's really just collectivism. As the church becomes more global, Mm. those voices are actually joining our local congregations and they're expressing these ideas and it's starting to take root a little more. We are just, uh, you know, it's me and Jesus. I mean, that Mm. was a song I sang back in the seventies when we all rode around in chartreuse microbuses. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I totally agree as I was listening to the book and the local church that I go to is more of a collectivist type style but as i listened especially to scripture through individualist eyes it was just became even more apparent the local church is meant to be a, a single unit it's meant to be a local expression of the body something that our western normal church has just gone wayside where now it's set up like a ceo and you have a bunch of followers that do whatever he says uh, so can i tell another story am i allowed no go okay. go for it well, you guys are like saying sick them to a dog. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you, you guys will remember this story. I, I woke up one morning and uh, and I walk out into our living room and there's no furniture there. I, my living room is just empty. We're in Indonesia. So I walked into the kitchen where Stacia was cooking and I said, uh, there's uh, no furniture in the living room. She said, yeah, I noticed that. I thought, hmm. okay. So, um, all right. And of course, you know, we didn't lock doors or anything back then because, you know, it's a, I, we're on an island, you know. And uh, so I come home for lunch from class and there's still no furniture in my living room. And I thought, okay. So we, we ate out on the back. Uh, and then about three that afternoon, a pick, old pickup truck pulls up, all my furniture is piled in it. And they, they start unloading. They say, hey, Pendetta, or Pastor, hey, you know, and they say hi, and they unload the furniture, and then they say bye, and they start walking out, and I thought, wait, 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 wait. I said, uh, where, where has my furniture been? And they said, oh, it's been up in this village uh, at a wedding. And I, I looked confused, and they said, well, they needed more furniture for the wedding, and we knew you wouldn't mind um, since you were asleep. And so I thought before, I have a sister I remember one time we were visiting my folks, both of us, and uh, I had come in on an airplane. She had driven in, and I wanted some coffee, and there wasn't any coffee that early in the morning, so her keys were right there. So I picked up her keys and went down to the gas station. Mm. I knew she wouldn't mind because she's we're family. Right. 
Well, that's what church is. Mm. You know, Paul calls it family. We call each other brother, sister. We don't really mean it. Mm. Um, we're so the offering is not an offering, like we it, it's the family fund. Mm. And I think the more we view each other as really as family, mm. but that's so hard for a bunch of individualists. Yeah, yeah. I definitely. think it's it's hard because our culture isn't it's not set up to do that, you know, well. So you have to really fight against so many tides, so many currents to make it really happen um, in that way. But um, uh, Randy, it, it was amazing. I mean, wow, you just dropped so much knowledge on us. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know you put so much work into the books with your co-author. And you guys just did a great job. So thank you for writing them. They, they've been super beneficial to me. And I know to whoever reads them, it's, it's, it's very important that we keep an, an elastic mindset about this kind of stuff, you know, that we really realize that, that there's other ways of viewing the world. And yes, in some ways, even the Bible, and we have to be okay with that. So I, I appreciate your books. that have really done that for me. Thank you for coming on. You're so very kind. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Wow, man, what an interview. I, I keep thinking back to this interview um, over and over again because there were so many good nuggets that Randy talks about. Guys, I can't recommend these books enough. I know I said it earlier, but truly, if you're interested in better understanding the world of the Bible, which hopefully every Christian is, please do us a favor and check out his books. Um, they will help you better understand what is happening in the scriptures and really help bring the Bible to life. Personally, I have really found that the more I understand the world of the Bible, the more I can understand what I'm actually reading. Because I think that we've all been in that moment where we're reading the Bible and we're thinking, I think I understand, but it's it's written so strangely compared to our modern English and I just know I'm missing things. So I highly recommend those two books. Once again, everyone, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to give us a rating and to subscribe so you can keep up to date with future episodes. We also have an Instagram at CTJ Podcast. Give us a follow and we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.